you have um, people in an organization who feel safe, they're less likely to leave. And they're less likely to leave even for pay rises. I mean, McKinsey, who are one of the biggest consultancies in the world, carried out an extensive study on this in 2021. And the data is just clear and present that where people feel safe, they feel that this is a tribe. So it goes back to our biological needs. You know, it's Maslow's hierarchy territory, right? Where we feel like we're safe and the people around us have our back then we're unlikely to feel stressed, so we're not moving into that fight and flight. So when we're in that fight and flight, that's when people change jobs, change relationships, hopefully over there where the grass is greener, I'll feel better. So for organizations, when they can make the environment safe, people stay. And the good news is, that's where you get organizations to agree to invest in psychological safety, because sadly, of course, it still needs to make companies more profitable in order to bring these softer skills in. And if we want to be more altruistic and if we want to have more vulnerability and we want to have, you know, a capacity to actively listen within the management structure, they will want to see that it improves the bottom line. And thankfully, Harvard Business School and the biggest study ever carried out in any organizational side through Google, through something called Project Aristotle, has proven that it makes businesses more profitable. So it's something that we finally have happier people and more money. Hello and welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. That wasn't enthusiastic, Sarah. Okay, I'm gonna have a go. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. Oh, that was a bit overkill. I think I can up that. You go in the middle, no, 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 try to tone it down and just be like kind of polite and sincere. Hello and welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast, where we're extremely grateful for your ears, for your attention, for your love and your heartfelt presence. That was so deep and meaningful. I'm very impressed, Steve. <laughs> Romantic. Thank you. Anyway, so, we're delighted to have your attention. We genuinely are, because I know there's loads of other buttons you could have pressed, and you pressed this one. So thanks a million. So please stay listening. Yeah, yeah, well, Don't press off it. No, <laughs> it's going to be class. Um, quickly before you start, can we please talk about our Happy Mind? Oh yeah. Course? Okay. So yes, we have a Happy Mind course. It's brilliant. It's class. It's all about helping you to have a better relationship with yourself. Ultimately, what we eat, how we move, how we think about ourselves has a massive impact on our well-being on a daily basis. We built this course with our own coach, a performance psychologist, Dr. Jerry Hussey. He's class, he's brilliant. He's like a modern day sage. Yeah, he really is. He's just divine. He's so lovely. And it's a four-week course. You can do it on our app and you can do it on our, you can find it on our website. Type in Happy Mind. It's brilliant. Yeah, do check it out. Happy days. Thanks. How are you about today? Uh, I'm dying to get out. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm twitchy. Like, a bit twitchy. Dog. I'm itchy. I'm, I'm itchy. I'm dying to get out. To get out. I need someone to throw the ball. I need some. I need to play fetch with a ball for a little bit. Like, is that metaphorical or is that real? That's absolutely metaphorical. It's just. I mean, you want to get outside, move, connect with nature. Yeah, I just need to get out of this little box of a room. For okay, well, before you go running out into the field, um, I want to check. What's that? Um, what do you call the person who? Um, you normally mention on courses are essential for people to stick to what they said they're going to do. Yeah, accountability, accountability buddies. Thank you. I should have said accountability buddies. buddies. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be your accountability buddy right now. Ooh, and oh, I'm going to no. you, based on all the podcasts that we've done, Yeah. Uh, what learnings have you made? And one, well, I won't go through all of them. Don't worry. Wow. Don't worry. Okay. Okay. Cool. Uh, and which, which you're going to answer on behalf of your brother, which one you've actually stuck to. Okay, wow. cool, cool. Okay. I like that. So, oh, we'll just start with an easy one, Johan Hessian, because it wasn't too long ago. It was about listening. listening. That was about listening. Yeah. Uh, she, we talked with her about leadership, and the, we did afterwards. We didn't think about listening, but 
Oh, it was lovely. All about mor- morals and focus on what's important. Character. And um, Stephen Flynn, do you think David's improved in his listening since we did our... Uh... Think like us all, he's good days and bad days. Yeah, but... <laughs> depends on who's talking. I, I, I'm going to stab my, my brother and go, I love my brother, even if he's a crap listener. <laughs> <laughs> well, this but thanks, is going to be a crap intro. No, no, okay. No, no. Drama. Sarah's looking for drama. drama. Okay, a Jeopardy. Um... Johnny. Dave sometimes is a good listener, but sometimes, like us all, he can be. It depends on who's talking. Yeah, yeah exactly. It depends on who's talking. Absolutely, I'm a better listener for certain people than others. <laughs> and how passionate I am. Thank yeah. you, Sean Cal. Thank you. Great, great input there. Thanks, yeah. Sean. And just if anyone wants a picture, Sean, Sean, he's sitting there with his bare feet out. He looks really happy, and he's just had his fifth breakfast. Like a ha- like a happy little hobbit. <laughs> fifth brekkie. Yeah, that's probably a better way of looking at meals. I want a brekkie again. Like. <laughs> Okay. Brecky's more exciting than dinner. Philippa Perry. What oh. Philippa Perry? I think that was brilliant. That was much more about parenting. Parenting and moving from the Victorian style of parenting where children should not be seen and heard and much more into kind of, they're just little humans, little human adults. Like they're really, they are us. They Ch- and us. Ch- children and, and the importance of rather than being autocratic and top down talking to them, it's more about actually listening to them. And when they are screaming or they're being really annoying, they just want your attention. And the more you can listen to it, even like the other night, I was tired and exhausted. And Ned, often Ned in the evening, my darling son, my five-year-old, can just ramp up the energy and ramp it up. And sometimes I feel like when I'm feeling really sorry for myself, I can go, he's picking on me. I know he's bullying. My five-year-old is bullying me. And I know that makes no sense. But when a little bit of poor me has fallen on me, this is what comes into my mind. But the more I can slow down and actually realize he's just looking for my attention. And if I give him my attention, suddenly it all goes away. Dave, do you feel the same way? Uh, Ned never picks on me. No. <laughs> no. My kids don't really pick on me. No. No. So uh, I, I need to re-listen to that one. That one was so good. That one was yeah. And just for my son, Ned, Ned never picks on me. It's me picking on me and blaming it on Ned. What, what about Dr. Melanie Joy? Oh, I love that. She was just so I graceful. can't remember what the big takeaway is. It, there it was the ability that it, it's not necessarily what you say. It was the context. And the context was much more important of the delivery of communication. And that no, no, often what, it's under... It was the process over the yeah, context. Yeah, the process. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a process or context or as in, how, yeah. as in like the environment and how you deliver yeah, it was, so was more important in the words of what yeah. you're saying. Wow. The manner. Yeah. So it's as much body language rather than what you say. Body language and environment and yeah, tone, intonation. Yeah, because away isn't going to remember oh the nuggets of wisdom you bestowed they remember the, the feeling the feeling that they had oh that. good one good yeah. takeaway that was good good work yeah. <laughs> you good to hear you remembered it <laughs> no no <I> can't. <laughs> no I'm not that good with time like the past the past you only look ahead do you I don't know what I do Okay, uh, do you remember what Joe Keown t- spoke about? Talk uh, to strangers. Yeah. Yeah, talk to strangers is good for you. It's important to talk to strangers and you could validate that or we all could because social integration is such an important thing in terms of yeah. well-being. So, yeah. And, and even it's amazing how in, often London people can, you know, people who live in London can often say London it's, can often Is this just London or is this cities? Cities in general, but London in particular because we're often told people aren't that friendly and it's hard to make friends. But when we go with that magic puppy dog energy and excitement and exuberance, knowing that we're only in London for a short period of time, you can have amazing conversations. Remember that lady you met in the train that was like an angel? She, knew, she was a total angel. Yeah, she really was. One of these like incredibly spiritual, again? profound, nearly like I asked her, I, I nearly felt like, will you just bless me as you leave? Oh, she, she said just, she'd say a prayer for us. Yeah, yeah she yeah. was brilliant she was all about saint anthony yeah yeah you did ask a priestess oh, yeah, i right. got a blessing do you remember yeah. that i got it got a, i got two blessings in, yeah. in a three-day <laughs> trip i got one from some random guy in the tube he was a priest and i said 
I don't know where I got it from. I saw on the platform and said, could I have a blessing, please? And he gave me a blessing. And then we were walking through some market and there was a female priest or yeah. a woman priest, which I hadn't seen none. that many of them. No, she wasn't a nun. She was a priest. I've and I said, could I have a blessing, please? And she gave me a blessing again. It's funny because I don't think I've ever seen so many. And I lived there for eight years. Maybe I just didn't notice them, but I was like, he's ha- happened to get two in a... Oh, I'm too far away. Sorry. He's happened to get two blessings in two days. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like getting bonus points. And I had, I had the best day. Those were two of the best days of my life. The days of <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Do you remember what the blessings even were? No, they but were I remember magic. being so delighted. Go, oh, I got Again, one and you didn't. Context. I context. Day felt great after. Didn't know what it was. There you go. But that was what was more important. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I very much enjoyed this air faucet. All right. Okay. Okay. So now it's podcast time. Yeah. So this week, our dear friend Justin Caffrey, and we often refer to Justin Caffrey as JC because that's his initials, not because he's Jesus Christ. He, and he is a wonderful, very wise, very. He's someone who's someone who we turn to when we've got problems or issues, and we need someone to talk with. He really is. He's a dear mentor, friend. Mentor. Mentor. He's dear a mentor. And a mentor. mentor uh, and he's and we've co- done coaching work with him as well. He is an ex finance guy that was deeply involved into finance in London, as in making loads of money. Yeah, he was and big in into world. making loads of money, and he taught. He's got a wonderful story of transformation. He's also got a master's in mindfulness. He's a coach. He's really changed himself. Even over the last And he's into six high performance years. leadership as well. Yeah, he's a really glorious, shiny man. You're really going to enjoy this. And uh, yeah, took, took up to some beautiful stories. And wait till the end because he tells the bear story, which is a famous story amongst our friends. And it's really worth hanging on for. It's a great one. Yeah, this one, this podcast will probably make you cry, make you laugh. I cried. This is the first podcast I cried in live. I cried during this podcast. Yeah. So, so ladies, without, this ladies is and emotional. gentlemen, without further ado, we give you the wonderful dear friend of ours, Justin Caffrey. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome to a dear friend of ours, Justin Caffrey. Uh, we've wanted a Justin as a guest on our show. It is a show, isn't it? Yeah. On it's our most show. definitely a show. Okay, it's most That's definitely a show. We it's wanted a had... show! Yes! Sorry, well, where are the dancers? Yes, you don't need okay, dancers. sorry. We okay. are the dancers. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, well, we've wanted a Justin uh, as a guest on, our, on the podcast for ages. He's brilliant. He's wonderful. He's been a dear friend for years and someone who we admire dearly. And uh, yeah, welcome, JC. We call him JC, not because he's Jesus Christ, but Justin Caffrey. Thanks. Just Thanks, to clarify. Lads. I'm only staying here if it's definitely a show. Yeah. Okay, it is a show. Right. It's going to be a show. We're okay. going to put on a show, JC. We're going to put on a show today. All Absolutely. Right. Thanks. Okay so, okay, so maybe let's start back with give a context of the Justin Caffrey. I, I, we, okay, okay, Steve. Can I go? Yeah, you can go, yeah. JC, I think a really important topic and something that's super undervalued in most relationships, in most organizations and most human interactions is the concept of safety and psychological safety. I wonder if we could, we could kick it off with that. Can I give a story to that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I never realized safety was so important in terms of relationship. And I'm talking about intimate relationships where you're, you know, with a partner or whatnot. And I never realized that it was super important until I met my wife. She obviously wasn't my wife when I met her, but, um, I realized that she really made me feel safe, like really made me feel safe. And that's enabled me to explore my curiosities and also come home and feel like, oh, wow, I've got safety at home, which has been a beautiful lesson for me. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because I know you explore this loads. Nice. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think the whole idea of psychological safety, it kind of gets, it kind of gets lost. Uh, when I When I deliver this to executive teams first that the the idea of possibly bringing it into the workplace a lot of executives are petrified at the idea because the psychological safety mean that everybody's going to get a bit soft and we're not going to get anywhere and before i know where i'm going nobody's doing what's needed in terms of the workplace 
and it's it is that idea of vulnerability so like like you say david like the whole idea of being in 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 the relationship and and finding that with with sab and and you know i found that myself with with my own wife if you can find that space where it's okay to be authentically you and to speak from a place of vulnerability the impact and how you feel in that relationship is is quite profound and and longer lasting and i'd say like in terms of my relationship it probably took me five years of my marriage to really find that gear but in a in a corporate setting the the criticism a lot nowadays is you know generation z and millennials you know snowflakes too soft expect too much etc and i see it completely differently i see it as a capacity to be able to say what's needed in order for me to want to stay in this environment whether it's the relationship or whether it's work and in contrast to that you know my generation i, I started working in, in london in 1995 it was anything but safe you know to speak up about how you felt was just not acceptable and it was kill or be killed in terms of how you work so there was no alternative other than to cowtail down to authority and deliver and i remember my first experience of thinking there's something not right i was i was quite young i was about 23 um we had a tragedy in the family where my nephew died he was 18 months old i happened to fly back to dublin for that i flew back i was here when he died and then i stayed for a couple of weeks to deal with his funeral and, and the and the impact on my family and then i flew back to the uk and i was back maybe six or seven days i wasn't particularly feeling great as you can imagine and and i got a phone call from my boss who said to me okay you know it's time to come back to work now uh, you need to get on with it and it wasn't like hi how are you are you okay it was it's time to get back to work and i knew that there was no alternative at that moment that i had to be back in work and if i didn't i was just going to get fired and the shift now is thankfully younger people are willing to say i need more time or i need more space or i need to speak about how somebody's talking to me in the office and it's also about their capacity to speak truth to power so in that scenario the last thing i could do was speak truth to power when you suppress not speaking truth to power then something else happens and you know roll on 18 months and i gave that person two fingers and walked out because what was suppressed inside me was anger and anger then eventually explodes and we don't necessarily do the best things so what we're trying to do with psychological safety is to encourage it as a means of communication and in high performance teams it's top of the list in terms of how do we achieve our goals because if we have open and honest conversations it means that those who are below the power can speak truth to power but in order to open that highway it must work both ways so it also means that in organizations you will have a forum where you allow people to speak but equally, you have a level of communication back to those people who are working within your team. So it's okay to walk up to somebody rather than it being an annual review and say, hey, can we sit down and talk about your performance? I think there's some things you need to work on. And that way, there's no surprises and everybody's communicating. What did, what did the, Ray Dalio, the Bridgewater guy, he calls it 
candid honesty or Her feedback. It's not ruthless. It's something, like something candor. candor. I mean, candor is 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 like so American, right? And yeah, it's I don't really know what that means. It sounds like candy. It's right. like honesty, isn't it? It's, it's to be honest. It's absolute honesty, right? It's absolute honesty. And I was teaching it in a workshop yesterday. Like the, the Harvard Business School talk about some of the key tests of psychological safety for leadership, right? So one of them is that leaders are willing to be open and vulnerable. So when you when you make a mistake, put your hand up and say, sorry about that, I ballsed up. I'm going to work better. I'm going to work harder. So that means that people see you as a relatable party. So the relationship between employees and employer. And it's between, human rather than robotic. Exactly, human rather than robotic. So, so that's one part of it. But some of the tests are being able to speak to people in your office. So, you know, one of the things that I talk about is if you're in a meeting and, you know, there's six or seven people in a meeting and the person sitting beside you has a bogey hanging out of their nose, everybody in the room knows that there's a bogey hanging out of their nose and pointing it out in the room is not really very nice. But a, a leader who's respectful of how this room needs to feel and be might just say quietly in the person's ear, you know, you might want to just wipe your nose because they are in a position where other people are looking at them in a very different light in that room. Hmm. The attention is on them. They don't even know it's on them. It's a nice example. And it just allows you to show, hey, you know, you might do this. You do it quietly. There's no judgment. And it just helps them. And out. there's no shame by doing it publicly by going, hey, look, you know, that's everything which can often be the case. But also, also it seems like, uh, like when you're talking about their psychological safety, like particularly in a workplace where there's, you know, there's a manager or a boss and there's an employee and whatever. It's almost like taking away the hierarchy and being two flawed, vulnerable humans, being open and honest and communicating. Like, and whether it's in the workplace or in a relationship, ultimately safety, psychological safety is feeling vulnerable enough to be, or feeling safe enough to be open and be your full self, full of warts and all, because I think we connect as individuals more via our warts or as in our... Our flaws. insecurities, our flaws, these things are much more related than you've got a fancy car and you are super confident. And those are typically not that relatable. Like sometimes people will say me and Steve are unrelatable because we're like, Wah! you know, we're so high energy or whatever. But then when we're actually when we're insecure and feeling tired and whatever, maybe we're more relatable. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, I think in terms of, of that as a, as a really good example of perception, you know, like the three of us have got to know each other really well over the years and we've spoken really vulnerably to each other at times, okay? So we kind of know what's beneath the surface. And equally, when you're a leader inside an organization or a sports environment, being able to have that, you know, self-awareness and to be humble, you know, humility as a superpower in leadership is absolutely massive because it makes you relatable it makes people feel safer around you and it's also helpful because when when your when your team know that you make mistakes and that you struggle too and you know you might talk about i have anxiety or i sometimes feel challenged or i feel maybe i'm not good enough or i need to work harder then they start to think, oh, it's not just me. Because most people who have the internal dialogue in their heads can often feel like I'm on my own. And then we look around and we see everybody else who seems to be doing super well. But often, most people are just like, you know, the proverbial duck. It looks great as it's moving along the top of the water, but there's an awful lot of movement going on underneath. Mm -hmm. So that relatability, I think, is super important. And there's a, there's a funny example of, of, of 
how young people are changing the workforce. So there's a, it was last summer, there's a senior partner of, of one of the top accountancy firms in the world in London decides that, okay, it's time for everybody to come back to work again now, back into the office. I've had enough of, you know, COVID and all that kind of stuff that's going on. So he does a, a Zoom call with the whole organization and his positioning of the camera and everything else is kind of lower down and he's really on top of the camera and he's like really crowding the whole space. And he's expecting um, everybody to come on, listen to this great sermon from the Mount, right? About how we're going to change back to the way we were and five days a week in the office. So he starts this whole pitch off by dismissing, you know, COVID and and that, you know, really it's it's not that bad and people need to kind of, you know, pull up their socks now and get back to work, et cetera, et cetera. Not really reading the room because, of course, in a large organization, many people may have had relatives who had COVID and died, parents, grandparents. You know, the impact in terms of people's psychological welfare, a lot of people suddenly were cut off from the outside world, especially young people where they should be having a more social scene and all of a sudden that's ended. So he, he doesn't read the room. He's kind of dismissing the whole idea of it. And as he's giving this sermon, well, Generation Z and millennials are recording it and they're posting it. So he starts trending whilst he's delivering this talk <laughs> and trending not in a very good way. And one of the things he said on that call was like, you know, and this is important in terms of our clients, our clients want to see people back and work again. Our clients want this, our clients want that. Well, post the call, it was the clients who called the shots because they basically said, unless this guy is gotten rid of, wow. we're pulling our work. And these mm -hmm. were like multi, multi-million dollar contracts. So that's the the impact when you when you misread the room. You know, leaders in this world now either evolve or die. And you know, we, it was we, the dinosaurs. It's almost like out. the balancing between the the masculine and the feminine, not yeah. male and female. But it's like you know, traditionally, like the the workplace has been very you know macho and very like coming from the industrial revolution and very hierarchical and very kind of power and authoritarian. And then it's kind of it, in recent, there seems to be more which thankfully there's more bringing in of the feminine energy, the more showing of vulnerability, the showing of emotion, the showing of that democracy. we're all floored and more democracy and more like if we want a more engaged workplace or team or anything, it's to try to bring the whole of the person and the whole of the person is the flawed bits as well as the pretense, like the bits where they're putting on a good show. Show must go on, you know, and yeah, I think oh, the more of that, the more. Well, it's the classical, you know, all those Walt Disney movies that we would have grown up watching, you know, Mighty Ducks or those kind of, oh, I love those. Those <laughs> typical team ones where it's a bunch of kind of misfits, they come together and they're playing against the, like the, the elite athletes and the, the Swedish, the Swedish, whatever, it's normally the, 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 the bunch Swiss. of misfits kind of come together and then they're fighting and there's so much, and then suddenly they gel and they overcome the bunch of individuals. And I think it's kind of, it's just that, that, that uh, quintessential metaphor of that, the a team as some of the parts can be better than a bunch of individuals and i think ultimately any team whether it's a relationship whether it's an intimate relationship whether it's a family whether it's a business relationship whether it is actually a sporting team i think ultimately the more people feel safe exactly what you're saying the more likely they are to bring all of themselves and not just bring part of themselves, particularly in work. Like there's a lot of people will just bring, oh, it's just work. Like I, I only bring a side of myself. I don't bring the fact that I'm into music or I'm a, or I'm a comedian or I'm a, or I love dogs or I'm a, I love getting dressed up in fancy dress the weekend, whatever it might be, you know. Or you remember you'd ask a friend how was work. He said, yeah, I put in a good five out of 10. 
Yeah, you yeah. know, and, and and I think that's that that's kind of often very epitomizes much of you know the modern some day. Of the some, some of, but it's like I guess the goal is to, with engagement is how to bring more of ourselves to all our relationships and all our high performance teams. Yeah, it is, and and I think that more of ourselves as well. It's just like authentic self, you know. Like as a as, as a coach, and people come work with me, and they say, oh, "I, I want to be better," and I'm like, "Well, uh, I'm not really interested in that. I'm really interested in what's it like to be you. Like, what's it like to really be you? To be super comfortable around the idea of being you. To be okay with making tough calls, with making decisions that are not there to please everybody else. Like that's the that's the real essence of of authenticity, and in psychologically safe teams you want to have an environment where everybody feels okay to speak up because you know sometimes the the greatest ideas will come from the quietest voices in an organization but if you don't create the environment where everybody feels safe to speak then those people who may have that solution will stay quiet and what's interesting in terms of 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 how that plays out is that if you if you have um, people in an organization who feel safe, they're less likely to leave. And they're less likely to leave even for pay rises. I mean, McKinsey, who are one of the biggest consultancies in the world, carried out an extensive study on this in 2021. And the data is just clear and present that where people feel safe, they feel that this is a tribe. So it goes back to our biological needs. You know, it's Maslow's hierarchy territory, right? Where we feel like we're safe and the people around us have our back then we're unlikely to feel stressed. So we're not moving into that fight and flight. So when we're in that fight and flight, that's when people change jobs, change relationships, hopefully over there where the grass is greener, I'll feel better. So for organizations, when they can make the environment safe, people stay. And the good news is that's where you get organizations to agree to invest in psychological safety, because sadly, of course, it still needs to make companies more profitable in order to bring these softer skills in. And if we want to be more altruistic and if we want to have more vulnerability and we want to have, you know, a capacity to actively listen within the management structure, they will want to see that it improves the bottom line. And thankfully, Harvard Business School and the biggest study ever carried out in any organizational side through Google, through something called Project Aristotle, has proven that it makes businesses more profitable. So it's something that we finally have happier people and more money. So that wow. So like the finding of that was that literally if people feel more safe and more supported to bring more themselves, it results in a more profitable organization. Yeah. Wow. Because not only does it result in a more profitable organization, but it results in more safety in terms of how people are. But culturally, people feel that their input is valuable. So you have people who say, well, I think we should do this a little bit differently. And I've been watching this. And when you talk about how does that work in practice inside of a company, if companies hold, you know, a forum where the CEO or one of the directors is talking to all the staff and they say, we really want innovation and ideas, we want people to put things forward, you have to then create an environment where every idea is heard and listened to. So if somebody says, I think it would be a phenomenally good idea if we had a canteen that was going to bring in whole foods, fruits and vegetables, and there was a nice, you know, water supply and fruit juices every morning. I think that'd be really good. So in terms of the wellness culture of a business, absolutely. So the leader would say, well, thanks for that suggestion. We'll take that on board and we'll come back to you. Then somebody else pipes up and says, I think it'd be fantastic if we had a machine that was dispensing, you know, chips and crisps and sweets and all the bad things. 
Now, when that person speaks up, some of the room will start to chuckle a bit and they might say, well, that's not really what we want. That's not part of our wellness. And the leader could dismiss them or they could dismiss the healthy person, depending on who the leader is. But the idea is accept both ideas, thank both people for their contribution and go away. Because within the psychologically safe environment, we're not saying we'll do everything, but we'll listen to everything with equal intent. And then we'll feed back and say, we've decided that we're going to do this, this and this. So it's that collegiate open conversation. It's that it's really it's kind of redefining leaders really in a sense because like we had a conversation with a lovely lady Joanne Hessian and she was all about leadership and she was talking like typically when I thought about that word leadership I was thinking oh it's American woo woo you know it's that kind of motivation kind of stuff and she was talking about it in in the reference to the soft skills like the soft skills the EQ skills rather than the IQ skills like the that being a better listener, being more emotionally intelligent, being more aware of other people's needs. I can't remember the eight pillars which he had in it, but it was just like ultimately it's about becoming a more evolved version of yourself, a more empathetic, caring, kind version of yourself. And particularly in the context of teams and relationships, it's about, you know, if we want to go far, we need to go together. Whereas if you want to go quick, go alone, you know, that kind of metaphor. And yeah, yeah, I think it's... I don't, don't have any pointer than just that waffle. It's nice. It's there, there, it's good, and, like and, and there was one more thing in the psychological safety I was thinking there is like, people will often go to me and Steve like, geez, you're feckin' mad. Like, you know, how did you do this, that or wh- whatever? Like, you know, they might say, I don't know what they'd be talking about. And and I don't, we'd often kind of be chatting about it. And then we might get to the place where, well, I guess because there's two of us and I know no matter what, like no matter how stupid I am or what I do, I know Steve will probably be standing there by my shoulder go, it's all right, Dave, get up there. Come on, we're grand. We get on with this. And I guess it's the ultimately we've both been the product of serious psychological safety because every day of our life we've had someone standing beside us or someone at, at our back. Your like biggest cheerleader going, go Dave, go Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. Which is like, because I remember in school, if one of us got a dig, like, you know, the other person, the other one of us would be, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be two other fists person. coming hit, hit the other person. And then I remember it kind of like that works wonderfully in psychological safety. But then in the other extreme, it's kind of like we're our own echo chamber because I'd be saying, oh, geez, Steve, you're brilliant. You're so good at that. And then you think you're brilliant at something. And I'm so biased that we'd end up way off course than where we, you know. So I guess the <laughs> pros and cons, cons of to, everything. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it is. I, I think, look, it's great to have to have that sense of, of having having your back. And a lot of the times, you know, a lot of leaders in their in their like 40s and 50s now in, in, in this world have come from a very different culture, you know? So the people that I work with are so far away from this concept and it feels almost unattainable at times, but it's, and often it's it's that idea of trying to, to do less to accomplish more, you know, kind of slowing down to go and better understand yourself and to become an active listener. So the biggest, one of the biggest skills is just actively listening and don't speak and then come back later on with some ideas. And that capacity is a skill that most people can eventually learn, but it's important to keep it simple. So we don't want to try and roll out, here are the eight key things that you need to change in your life to be a more psychologically safe leader, because that's too complicated. But from from where I've come from, you know, I was a 
very much a myopic, you know, so driven, focused, determined individual. And I would do whatever I needed in the most ruthless sense at all costs. The macho in the in the jungle, you know, literally, because it was a very macho, like, you know, finance and... But, but before we get before. into this, can I just ask one question before we go into, into that? I was just going to say, is there any correlation between like, because almost what we're talking about is like, particularly in the context of an organization or a team or a group of people wanting to achieve some kind of output, like... What we're talking about here is something someone that's got very high EQ and they're they're less ego driven and the stereotypical that certainly we've grown up we're in our forties all of us and that uh, that idea was the kind of alpha male that was the biggest in the room the most dramatic and that was the leader whereas what we're kind of talking about more is someone who's very emotionally aware and more has those softer traits and I'm wondering is there more of a link between female leaders versus male leaders because I think certainly in for our era. It's your counterculture if you're a very high EQ male leader, whereas it probably comes more naturally to women to be better listeners and to be more empathetic and whatnot. And I wonder, is there any doubt on that? Or, um, Yeah, so yes and no, because so one of the really interesting things about the, from the pandemic was that we had people working from home, right? So we had a huge swathe of people all over the world who'd go and work from home. On the return to work data where people are coming back to the office, what was interesting is um, two different studies, one looking at um, ethnic minorities coming back to work, right? And the really stark data was that ethnic minorities, I think it's 3% in the study wanted to come back to the workplace. And the biggest reason why 97% didn't want to come back was the fact that they had to go through this kind of code um, adaptation in order to to be in work so they had to assimilate their white colleagues to be okay in work and uh there's a, there's a really phenomenal lady who who dug into this um abby edmondson in the us and what they found was that for ethnic minorities to come into the workplace they really felt that they had to dress differently at times they had to speak differently at times and they, um, a lot of uh, the, the black African-American community were talking about the fact that it, their white colleagues started to feel like it was okay to talk about their hair or touch their hair. So they, this study started to show how unpsychologically safe the workplace can be for ethnic minorities because when they worked at home, they were able to be authentically themselves. And the results of being authentic themselves made them feel more comfortable, which meant they brought more of themselves to their workplace. And and a similar study was looking at the difference between male and females returning back to the workplace. And again, in in leadership teams, and I find this a lot, I've worked with quite a few um, leadership teams in in London. And, you know, a lot of very senior executives now are women. And often the challenge can be that they almost need to sometimes lean into higher levels of masculinity to compete in that environment. And that can be challenging too. So it's, I don't think it's as simple as saying male, mm. female. I definitely I think, think it's, it's masculine and feminine. Masculine yeah. and feminine. It's much more about yeah. like, like traditionally it was more the masculine energy or the masculine archetype. And I think it's more about getting into that feminine, that soft, that more better listener, that better. So not be banned by your genitalia no. or your, exactly. your gender. Yeah, your yeah much more identity. gendered, much more about wow. your yeah, the expression just, of energy. Just try and listen, <clears throat> you know, like that's, that's the biggest thing. It's to try and compassionately listen as best you can. And I think meeting people wherever they are. That's key. And, and if you look at, you know, in sport, we see how where psychological safety works really well. And 
Jurgen Klopp, who's the manager of Liverpool, is a really good example of somebody who brings that epitome to high performance sport. You know, he he understands how to motivate each player differently. So some people need a bit of a, a bit of a kick. Some people need a bit of a hug. Well, they some need people, loads of praise. Some people need loads of praise, right? You know, we know about that. Oh, <laughs> yes, he, Steve. He does that really well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're great, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, he he has brought a, a you know such a, a high performance element to to his group. And, and I remember hearing and being interviewed about this, and 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 um, the interviewer, I think it was Gabby Logan, said to him. Um, what is it that you have that is so different to everybody else in terms of how you manage people? And he says, uh, to be honest, I just look at them all and meet them as they are. I think it's common sense. But he said, as we know, that's not very common. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's so that simple sometimes. Meet people but where they are. Just awareness, self-awareness. I like that you, uh, one thing you said as well, that often when people don't feel psychologically safe in a relationship, in a, in a, in a, in a team sport or in the workplace, they're typically in their fight or flight response. And when they're a fight or flight response, they're, uh, they're caught up and they're only typically using 40 to 50% of their brain capacity because they're in this, this adrenaline fueled, um, unsafe feeling. When you even think of yourself, like when you're most productive is probably when you're slightly tired. You, like I think of myself and that's why I'm kind of objecting on to you is that like you're probably Thanks, most creative when you're relaxed like when you've had a good run and you've got that kind of like that itchy wild energy dog, yeah. wild dog energy out of you and then you're like oh wow like and then then you can let your creativity go wild and same way when we travel like you you often say like geez I'm like swimming in pure potenti- potentiality here because there's you f- you're like you're not bound no, by Paul you're not jokes, stressed Paul jokes that it's those airport emails typically on a plane I could be writing 25 emails and then land and just because like, oh my god because <laughs> you're not ba- like you're not stressed you're not in the daily kind of doing mode you've got a little bit of space so therefore your mind runs wild but I was asking Justin about it sorry <laughs> I'm not listening more. I'm I'm being crap. Sorry. That's all right. So thanks. Right. Thanks. We lads. still appreciate. Th- it. Thanks a million, lads. Yeah. I love you. I think yeah. Uh, so funny enough, part of what I teach is is something called polyvagal theory, which is the polyamorous theory. Polyvagal. No, Poly- that's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so polyvagal theory is that whole idea of understanding the the fight and flight response versus you know rest and recovery and how do we stay inside homeostasis so when it comes to high performance it's critical you know it's that when you see the the johnny sextons of the world move out of you know the the cut and thrust of of a combative game of rugby and then they have to basically play chess with maths to try and figure out how do i kick this little ball in the wind you know through those goalposts it's very it's a very much different skill so when you see the rugby players you know, moving up and down on their feet and, and just breathing. It's that idea from, from a sports psychology perspective, as you reconnect with your nervous system and move it out of that fight-flight response, get it into homeostasis, then you're reconnecting, as you said, Stephen, the lack of cognitive ability. And we know it's a 60% decline in cognitive ability when you're in a stress state. But if you can just spend 60 to 90 seconds breathing, you can reconnect to your full cognitive ability so you can then read the wind understand the angles make the connection and just be in flow 
And nail beautiful. that kick. So nail Den, kick. regulate your breath. Like we we chatted with Patrick McKeown last week and he was all about Den, regulating your breath, a longer out breath, having somewhere between 4.5 and 6 breaths per minute. Yeah. 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 Critical. And, that, and like, this is a thing that I teach leaders and people who are like me at the start looking at me going, so you're telling me that you're going to teach me how to breathe differently and I'm going to perform differently. I'm like, yeah, just got to wait. It's going to take a bit of time. It's going to take some months. But, but to those traditional leaders, they're like, it's, uh, I don't want that. I want a five-year plan and I want to actually, you know, it's a different energy. What's the ROI you, on this? Like what you're bringing is this, it's like the epitome of uh, anyone who read Stephen Covey's book, um, The Seven, Seven Habits, to sharpen the saw. Yeah. You know, it's, it's in essence that it's how to, these deep fundamental changes that you can do that change everything of your life. Yeah. I mean, it's great. There's a, there's a poem. So, so Taoism, which, which predates you know, Buddhism and Hinduism and Christianity. There's a, there's a poem, it's 5,000 years old, and it talks about this archer who's going to take a shot. And it talks about the fact that the archer is so proficient, he always hits the target and he enjoys the challenge. But the minute he moves to hit the brass buckle, all of a sudden, it's a little bit more difficult to hit the target. And then what do you like as in it's a prize or something? It's a prize. Okay. So exactly. So it moves up. All of a sudden, they now have a prize, and then he moves up to a silver prize, and it becomes more difficult. So now the target's nearly doubled. And then it comes up to the gold prize, and he's kind of outside of his body. It's so hard to do it. But if the archer just learns to breathe and remember what it was like to do it for fun, then he can hit the target. And that's the idea of you know flow state, wu wei, as the Chinese say, when you have your, your energy moving in the right direction. So the qi of the energy is in flow, which happens through the breath. So we can make really, really good decisions. I teach teams how to negotiate by using mindfulness and meditation practices because if two people walk into a room to negotiate, one person comes from the last meeting on their phone, stressed, thinking about where they're going next. They come in, they sit down. The other person who is like the archer, they've learned to remember all the successes, when it was good, when they were happy, They've done some breathing before they've walked into the negotiation. They have a practice of breathing and meditation maybe before they go into the session. So then they sit down. And this is where the power of listening becomes the power of profitable listening. Because when people negotiate, somebody wants to win. And everybody struggles when it's quiet. So when there's a void, somebody else will talk. So if you're able to go in calm, conscious of your breath, slowing down, and you create a void, the other person will fill the void. And quite often with information that you need to win the negotiation. Ooh, so it's slowing me. down and just, you know, e connecting e to yourself. E even in that, in that analogy, it made me think of back, back when we were like 16, 17, we used to be so into golf. Like we were absolute golf nuts. And I remember playing in the Leinster boys. We were probably 16 or 17. We were Leinster. I think it was the Leinster boys and we just got in, it was in Greystones and we had been playing so much and we're hyper competitive. And I remember like, we were really good. We were really good. And I remember going out and I was playing with two lads that had like, one had won the Irish something or other and someone else was a big deal. And I was kind of, go, oh my God, here we go. And I went out and I kind of played crap. And then afterwards we went to the pudding and the chipping green and I hit the flag on every shot. I was hitting everything like right beside the pin and they were going, oh my God, like you're a totally different player here in the practice ground. And it was, it was very interesting to see with pressure. I was exactly like the archer. And then I remember like a year later playing in the Wicklow boys 
and it was the final round. I was going into leading and I remember there was this old guy walked at me, an old guy from our golf club walked at me. What was his name? Brian O'Connor. Yeah. Brian O'Connor. He was like a magical angel because he died soon after that. But he, he walked with me and I chatted away with him and I could have been out and it was like a summer's day. There was no competition going on because I was in my head because I was just having this lovely chat and I was laughing away. And I played like the golf just was the easiest thing in the world. And I ended up winning the tournament. And it was just literally that down to exactly what you're saying, the the mentality of going when you're in that fight or flight phase, you're never going to perform as well as when you're relaxed and at ease. And in flow. Exactly. If you remove that kind of judgment from the workplace. So bring this back to the workplace. The, where Where it's okay to make a mistake, where we kind of accept that people make mistakes, where leaders speak about, I make mistakes too. We want to actively encourage people to feel okay about making mistakes because when they do, then they feel it's okay to take risks. They feel like it's okay to step up and perform because if I'm not going to feel like everybody's judging me and laughing at me, and this is an environment where it's okay to take risks, then for some people that will be really kind of audacious, bold decisions that can change the dynamic of the organization. For other people... That will be just a quiet hand going up in a meeting that makes a suggestion that might save the organization half a million euros. So it's 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 create the environment so that the collective of all the personalities feel okay. Because even, you know, we've talked about this before and, you know, we're, we're, we're similar personalities in terms of our competitive nature and stuff. But equally, you don't want to look like a fool in front of a bunch of people either. So it's not like we've managed to carve that bit out of us. We still feel hurt when people around us might be dismissing us and, um, you know, ridiculing us. But leaders are able to kind of make it look like it's okay and they don't feel that. But when it's really impactful is to say, well, actually, I struggle too. And then people realize, oh, okay, so everybody's struggling. And it's about just try your best every day. And that environment brings excellence in terms of performance in teams. Brilliant. The irony that like excellence, you don't think of excellence as, you know, something that encourages failure and not, not encourages, but allows failure and kind of helps people learn from failure. And well, I think it's that's, kind of diluting of ego and the more, you know, together. I think that's the one. Can, can we get into like you, you're, you're like the JC, the JC that we know today uh, wasn't the JC of 20 years ago. And I think your story of transformation is great and really fun. And, you know, it's it's very interesting and relatable. So I'd love if you could talk about, you know, the capitalist financial Justin versus the Justin of today and some of the journey along there. Now, that's a very big question, but... Yeah, but it's a really fun one if you'll entertain us, Justin. <laughs> we, we'd love to, it's like, we're ready for a story. <laughs> okay. Do you want me to get your blankets? You took yeah, us in. Great. Yeah, 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 Can we great. get some we warm some nice cocoa as well? Some hot cocoa? No problem. Cocoa on the way. Um, yeah, I think, well, I, I went to London when I was 19. Um, I came from Dublin. At that stage, you know, Ireland was a very And you grew up in Ballymun, which is a place that typically doesn't, yeah. you know, doesn't breed that many high financial, you know, people that go to I London. I think you went to school in Ballymun or near yeah. Ballymun. I was going to say, I, I grew up in Santry, right? My mother would not be happy if she said I grew up in Ballymun, because okay. right? my mother is very posh about where, where she lives. Um, and rightly but, so. And rightly so. She's brave. Unquestionably, we were working class. Sorry, mammy. But, you know, that was the environment we grew up in. And I went to school in Ballymun, um, pr- very, very rough, tough primary school. 
I went to secondary school um, in in Whitehall, um, St. Aidan's, and and funny enough, I heard um, uh, a radio interview recently with somebody who'd been to that school, um, who is the head of the Orty Philharmonic Orchestra, talking about you know how horrendous it was to go to that school because you went in every day, keeping your wits about you, knowing that you know one wrong move and it was all going to end mm-hmm. up in a big scrap. So it was. It was a very rough and tough environment in primary school. Not psychologically school. safe. Oh, no. no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, not psychologically safe in terms of uh, quite often the pupils and then, and then you know, some of the teachers and, and, and dare I say it, the Christian brothers as well. So you were, you were navigating a lot in terms of, of getting through it. And don't get me wrong, I actually had a great time, right? I loved school. I had had really good time there. But it also was a, a good kind of breeding ground to that killer be killed mentality and that understanding that as we all learn at some point in our lives, nobody's coming to save you, you know, unless you're able to <coughs> manage your own issues in, in school or life. And at some point, we all find it out. You're on your own. So that was a good breeding ground. I ended up going to London. After school, um, I went to do computer science and, and dropped out of college after about like four months and went to work in banking in London, had a very successful career. By the time I was 21, 22, I was managing a team of 10 or 12 people. I was making back then probably like 120, 130,000 pounds. As a 21 year old? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty... It was kind of obnoxious. And this is about like 1950 or something, isn't it? <laughs> 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 1962. Sorry. <laughs> hey, you don't have the gray hair fully. <laughs> I couldn't help it. Um, you left the door open there. Yeah, I know, I know, I did, I know, I did. I lined it so up. So 2000 here. or something like that. This was, so this would have been, 1990. uh, well, 1997. Wow, um, geez, it's a lot so, of money for yeah, that time. That was a lot of money. Um, and, uh, you know, for every extra pound, um, I, I, I grew, you know, an extra bit of ego. So it, it definitely fed into that egotistical view of yourself. And you start to feel like, you know, you're invincible. Um, and, and I was probably, um, I would say, a difficult person to be around because all I wanted to do was work. So in hindsight, when I look back, I can see I developed a workaholic approach to life and i didn't really socialize or do anything else and work was my focus and after a few years in banking i left and set up a, a business with, with a partner of mine two two guys and um, we built an organization over the next few years that became one of the biggest independent financial services companies in the uk we had a couple of hundred staff and offices in different places and it was all very exciting but it was purely focused on you know the next deal the next bit of success push harder keep going um and not having a personal life a social life not you know interacting really and thankfully then i met um i met my wife when i was 30 and that started to to bring the possibility of some change into my life but i i still really hadn't got a sense of what it was like to be a conscious human being you know, all I knew was... And, and what do you mean by conscious? Because that word can be mean a lot well, of things maybe, to a lot of maybe people. Maybe it's like to go back on the, the issue of psychological safety, that you were still largely in that fight or flight, like eat or be eaten type mindset. And that you weren't bringing this whole other, like you were in the, caught up in your masculine energy as opposed to the feminine energy. There was very little of this feminine energy in it at all. So you was like half of you was being expressed. Totally. I mean, 
when I look back retrospectively, if I had some of the skills now back then, the impact would have been far greater. So people often say, well, you're not a bit softer now compared to how you were then. The difference is I was much, I'm much more aware now. So I would actually see what's actually really happening in a negotiation. I would be able to listen more impactfully. Back then it was grab, 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 push, 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 grow, grow, grow. I want to win, I want to win, I want to win. win. At all costs, right? You know, it was like, everything was just competition and you just wanted to win. So I think... Therefore, were you quite a stressed kind of character and like blowing up all the time, like regularly at that stage? Because, you know, you you can't always win, you know, that kind of way. And therefore... I I wish I was, right? I internalized everything. So I was more, you know... Uh, containing and holding back and I had this immense capacity to deal with huge levels of stress and turbulence and lots of challenges in growing a very difficult and complex business but I, I didn't really have an outlet for it so that works really well for a while and then it stops and I, I sold I sold um, a business in, in, in 2007 um, and I had to take some time out after I'd sold it because I couldn't work after um, I'd exited. Um, and I was trying to figure out what I do next and what, where will I spend my energy. And we were then thinking, well, where will we go and live? What should we do? We just had our first child. And um, you're early 30s at this stage. Yeah, I was like 31, 32. And I couldn't really find anything that I wanted to do. So it was like, I just need to start working again. So financial crisis was kind of kicking off at that stage. And I was doing all kinds of mad stuff. We were raising money for movies. We were raising money for aircrafts because all of the major banks around the world had pulled themselves out of the normal things that they would provide money to. So I was back immersed in all that mayhem. And um, during that period of time, my wife was um, pregnant again. So we thought we we're having our second child and, and then she, she miscarried and then she got pregnant again and then she miscarried and then she got pregnant again and then she miscarried. And I was so not present for any of those experiences. Like she went to the hospital on her own. I was too busy. I was, you know, changing the world. I wasn't able to be there. And I had no concept of what she was going through. So conscious, I mean, just aware of anybody else, except what it is that I think is really, really important. And we we then decided we're not going to have any more kids after she had the third miscarriage. And as we had that conversation two days later, we find out she's pregnant. So six months into that pregnancy, we think, well, let's go to um, Spain. Let's have a last vacation before we have the second child. And we're we're on vacation. We're we're a week um, into our into our holiday, and she wakes me up at three o'clock in the morning to tell me that her waters are broken, and I'm like. I can't, I, can't even, I can't get my head around that. And we'd, we were in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't like we'd gone to, you know, Marbella or something. We were way out in the middle of nowhere. So what ensued was a life-changing moment, which meant that we were stuck in Spain. So we got her to a hospital. They, they, they sustained her. But a week later, um, they lost the heartbeat. The baby had to be born by emergency cesarean. He was, uh, he had, had a... Um, brain injury due to lack of oxygen um, and he was in intensive care and our life stopped so we then got stuck in Spain for a year because um, he was in neonatal intensive care uh, we couldn't get him out he wasn't well enough um, he had multiple um, health challenges but he was alive and we wanted to keep him alive as, as best we could 
so everything kind of all of a sudden was very different. And what was really noticeable for me was how absolutely present I was to to them because everything else that you think is important all of a sudden is just blown away. And all you're focused on is how do we keep our other child who's three feeling like he's safe and he's okay because now we're in a foreign country, we don't speak the language, you never any intentions of of being here. And we have a kid who, a baby who's in neonatal intensive care, and we're talking to medical teams about neurological injuries. And again, we don't speak the language. So that journey, which which lasted nearly a year, was was fraught with many ups and downs. But I have incredibly fond memories because I was so present. You know, I was I was there with with Luca, who's now fifteen bring him to school, part of his life, bring him to the playground. So one of us would be with Joshua, who was our younger son, and one of us would be with Lucas. So we were managing our time and kind of ships in the night, and we had family come over every now and then to help us, but predominantly it was us. So that that idea of, of presence was really there, and that idea of slowing down and paying attention to what's really important to you became um, quite clear. But in the end... Joshua didn't make it. So after 11 months, um, he was he was being put back on life support for the fourth time. And our, our medical team said it was, it was Christmas Day. Um, and they said, look, you know, we know the fight that you guys have put in and we understand how much you want to keep your son alive. But four times, um, and, I've, and I've seen it firsthand twice where they have to um, intubate a baby and they're like holding him down by his hands and his feet and then they have to pump huge amounts of drugs in and all the rehab that you've done in the lead up to that's reversed so the physician said look we're not going to do it again um he's just not going to make it and and the fifth time is is just no no place to go and we were lucky in spain that they would do that it's quite likely in the uk because we we had a, a friend who was an um uh, an emergency doctor physician in the uk who said the UK may not have even resuscitated after birth. So we got this wonderful year. Um, but we had to face into the stark reality that Joshua, when the next moment came, he was going to die. Um, so we fought a last battle to to have him with us at home, to, to, um, to spend his last few weeks with us in a non-medicated environment. We had a beautiful experience where our family came over, Luca got to be with his brother, and... We got to really get that sense of what it was to be a family, even if it was only for those fleeting few weeks. And we got to have him with us and die in Beatrice's arms. And that, to me, is still one of the most profoundly beautiful things that ever happened. Um, and, and, you know, unsurprisingly, a bit life-changing as well. Wow. I'm speechless. I'm crying. It's lovely. Well, it's amazing, the emotion and the, just the feeling within that. And the, just the, oh, what a life-changing event, almost like you come from one world and you're totally brought to be reminded what's important and what you really value in spite of what you think you value. Yeah, and I think when I look back, and I think, you know, in tragedy you have to find hope and, and meaning, I really believe that Joshua was the greatest teacher that I've ever had because mm. he just came to 
kick me in the head. Kind of woke you up in a sense. Totally. You totally. told a lovely story of, of Luca, Luca's understanding of it. I remember, oh, I geez, remember hearing this that story. Is, this, is, this is story time with Justin again. <laughs> I remember you this telling is, that Put your story. feet up, folks. Here we go. <laughs> and you got to tell the bear story. Yeah, no, no, we're way over. David Flinch. Yeah, I mean, it was, that was just really one of the most amazing things. So, so the, 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 the day that, that Joshua died, you know, the, the night before he died, he had about six or seven cardiac arrests with us and we had a heart monitor on him and we knew what was happening and and we'd been given the the capacity and trained to administer morphine patches so as he was getting into more difficulty we were able to administer morphine so that his 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 death would be the least painful because his lungs were weak and he would eventually unfortunately die of um, asphyxiation so he had to be relieved of his pain so the night before we thought he was going to die um, and he didn't, he survived. And it was really beautiful because we took him to bed that night. He slept between the two of us and we had the most wonderful night. And the next day when we, we woke up, we knew that, you know, this was going to be the last day. And, um, I said to Beatrice, look, it'd be great. My parents would come over. Can you take Luca, get them to take Luca to the beach? And, and then, you know, we can have our final time with Joshua because Luca was three and we didn't want him to see obviously Joshua dying at that moment. So my parents took him off to the, to the beach and actually I drove them off to the beach. But what was incredible was Beatrice went downstairs and she got everything ready um, for Luca. She came back up and all this time I'm with Joshua for about 45 minutes and he's still breathing and he's alive and the heart monitor's there. And when she arrives back up, I hand him to her and as I put him into her arms, he takes his last breath and he dies and it's astounding the way it happened because i always think he really waited for her to come back and then he knew okay now i'll die and it was it was really compelling um and there's another part of that story that i'll, I'll come back to but um what happened then afterwards was so luca was away with my parents and um eventually the undertakers would come to our house and they would take joshua away and my parents came back from the beach and we were like burnt out, right? It was like an intense day. And we said, look, let's sit down and talk to Luca tomorrow about the fact that, you know, Joshua has died. So we told him that Joshua has gone off to um, the hospital and he was used to Joshua being in the hospital. And then we'd say, and now he died and we'll tell him the next day. But we couldn't really go through it that night. We were, we were wiped. So Luca was, was put into bed. And I suppose like the, the, the weirdest interaction for me was that when, when we put him into bed, um, I went, I went into bed and Beatrice then came in and she said, okay, you know, Luke is in bed. Do you want to go and give him a kiss? Good night. And I said, yeah, great. And she said, when you go in and give him a kiss, just tell me if you notice anything different. So I went in, gave him a kiss and I kind of was really astounded by what I sensed when I gave him, gave Luca a kiss and I went into the bedroom. And I get into bed with Beatrice and I said, what is it that you notice? And she said, well, you tell me first. And I said, <laughs> that's like a test. I yeah. those type of questions. Like, I'm like, oh, I don't know what I'm getting the right answer. And I was like, um, well, I know this sounds really weird, but I noticed I could smell Joshua's breath and I could smell Joshua off Luca's face and his mouth. And she said, that's exactly what I noticed. And we were like, okay, well, that's really weird. And Joshua had this really specific taste because he was tube fed and he had uh, he had oxygen tubes around his mouth and so it's a very it's a specific 
almost medicalized smell off him at times. And we thought that's really weird, but you know, we're tired and whatever. So let's, let's try and sleep. So we, we slept and the next morning we could hear at the end of our bed, this little three-year-old Luca standing at the end of the bed and wake up and I'm looking at him and he's saying something about Joshua. And I said to him, what did you say? And he said, oh, baby Joshua made the sun come up this morning. And I was like, how does baby Joshua make the sun come up this morning? He said, well, I was sitting at the end of my bed and I saw baby Joshua's face going all the way up into the sky and into the clouds and he was beside the sun and then he went away and he made the sun come up. (laughs) (laughs) And the two of us like just bolted up in bed, (laughs) looked at this three-year-old and looked at each other and thought, okay, some things just don't need to be explained and don't need to be thought about too much and but it was a really bizarre and profound moment to have this three-year-old who had no idea yet that his brother had died i guess they pick up on the emotion or some you know the, almost the it's palpability like, it's of, like animals it's like when you're going away on holidays the dog can feel it and they don't even have to know it like they're not even told it they just feel or, it. I, think, or it, I think where we forget that where and animals, it's the same really, way you feel if you feel sad like i know it myself sometimes if i feel really tired and sad or a bit kind of battered by life I'll sit there and one of the cats will jump up and sit in my lap and the cats never sit in my lap unless I'm meditating or if I'm like overwhelmed and exhausted the cat that's the only time they'll sit in my lap is because they can sense oh you're like vulnerable and you need you know you're not going to be predator I don't know what it is anyway but it's I, I agree and I think I think kids at that age are so you know there's no judgment inside them they just meet life as it is and they see things as they are um so whatever Whatever wisdom was imparted upon him that day, you know, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, it was really quite beautiful. But it was um, it was quite a game-changing moment, and and it, and it, and that whole experience always comes back to the the deep sense of gratitude that I have for his life and his death, because mm. of course I would have liked him to live, but that wasn't to be the case. So I can actually find joy in that short life because. He changed the way that we are. Now, I didn't change the way that we were straight away because after his death, I went back to, you know, flex my muscles and man. The only way you can do it is yeah. get well, on and get really working. Good with it. Yeah. I want to be useful. Rawr. I'm going to build a business and it's going to be bigger and better than the last one. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll show everybody that. I've uh, was that, was that your natural response? That was literally, that was. Ah, Totally. Totally. Like you I'm know, not I, sitting around licking my wounds. Automatic. I'm getting straight into. I was about three weeks after his funeral, and the CEO of an Irish bank was at his funeral, and I was pitching an idea to his board. I was in I was in his offices, and he said to me, um, "You know, really like this." Afterwards, he said, "I really like this idea, but you know, what are you doing here?" Like it was his funeral a few weeks ago. And I thought, I remember looking at him going, well, this is what I do. This is how I cope. You know, it's time to move on. And when I, when I think about the two paths that we followed, and this is really, this really speaks to the core of psychological safety and difficult conversations and leaning into the difficulty. Okay. So we either lean into stuff that's challenging or we lean out and high performance leadership, high performance teams don't shirk away from the difficult conversations and the difficult things that need to be done. And if I if I roll back a little bit, what's really interesting is when I brought Luca down to the beach that morning and Beatrice was still with Joshua who died, what she did was she then took this dead child and lay him out on his changing mat and 
went through this whole process that lasted, I don't know, maybe 90 minutes, where she cleaned and prepared the body. He had all these tape on his face and stuff because he had oxygen masks and tube fed. So she cleaned and took care of him, caressed his body, had this deep connection with him. And I went off and down to the beach. So I come back and I walk in towards the end of this and I see this experience that I can only really kind of describe as otherworldly or almost alien experience to witness this deep connection that she had with her dead child lying in front of her. And she didn't even really notice that I was in the room and I just stood there to bear witness this. I've never seen anything like it and I hope I never see anything like it again. But but it was incredibly primal and it made me think, wow, we have this like deep innate sense within us to know what to do. So when she'd done all that and then kind of saw me and noticed me, then I said, okay, look, I phoned the funeral directors. They're on the way and they're going to be here in like whatever, 15 minutes. So I then had maybe five minutes where I held on to his dead body just to carry him to the the car and I put him in his coffin but very limited time and I'd kind of run in been at the back of this and then boom and off I went now that was 11 years ago and my wife has never been in therapy for the loss of her son I've trained as a therapist because I needed so much help <laughs> but she never went into therapy she came into Ireland and she walked with a dog in the mountains for about six months and just came to terms with the fact that he's dead and that's okay. And life is moving on. She grieved. She loved him. She missed him. But she went through a really simple, primal interaction. The absolute reality of what had happened is abundantly clear because she was completely close to the tragedy of what had unfolded. I didn't get close to it. And then I spent the next two or three years trying to run desperately away from it. And that ultimately led me down a path of multiple autoimmune diseases. I'd gone from a healthy person to irritable bowel syndrome, leaky gut, adult asthma, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, extreme anxiety, depression bouts, culminating in, in suicidal ideation, desperately thinking suicide is the only option, a deep hatred of myself, you know, shame, guilt. As a father, your son died, could I not do any more? never having the capacity to speak, not knowing how to speak because of the way I've been conditioned from a young age, in, in the, especially in that work and culture environment. But growing up, you know, in the tough school environment, you don't speak about how you feel. And the more we contain all of this, eventually it just explodes. And, and this was, you, you couldn't even talk to like a therapist or something, like there was just no way. You probably to were afraid to go to the therapist. Yeah. Because I mean, back then there was the idea that if you went to the therapist, you were broken. I'm not one of them. Yeah. Yeah, this is back a number of years ago. Ten years ago. Ten years ago. I, I remember, like, this is this to show you how crazy this was. Um, I actually thought that because Beatrice was so okay with it all and calm about it, of course, we you know we still do. We we both cry at anything that happens on TV. When you've been in, in that emotional impact, it always comes up, but in a nice way. But I felt that she wasn't doing well enough, right? So I said to her, "I think you need to go to therapy." And and she was like, oh, I don't really, I feel okay. And I said, no, I think you do. And I said, I think Luca needs some therapy as well. So she said, okay, well, I'll go, but we have to all go along. 
So we went to see this therapist and we all went to the three of you together, like three of us together. Can you please fix us, please? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and we all turned up and I said to the therapist, now, you know, I do think that the two of them may need help. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, They're very masculine of you. Yeah. Just <laughs> We've been through a lot and they need help. So she has a session with us and um and then she said, Okay, well, you know, Beatrice will come back for session. And she said, you know, I'd like you to come back for session too. And I was like, okay well I'll come back but there's nothing wrong with me <laughs> <laughs> and I came back and we had had like maybe two sessions with her and I had no interest in being there and I remember you know in the second session that I was with her um she she said to me now how are you now and I was back working like a lunatic right I was flying 200 times a year I was away every week so I flew every week I only came home with the weekends I was running business two businesses in two different countries and I sat down and I said to her she said how are you and I said yeah I'm not too bad I said but I had a weird dream and she said what was your weird dream and I said I was on a plane and it was going to crash and I thought well that's okay because then I'll be dead and all the noise in my head will end so I was quite happy about that and she said to me uh I have to stop you there I can't talk to you anymore. I'm not skilled to be able to deal with this. Um, I'll need to refer you to somebody else. And I thought, huh? I just had a dream. Like, what's the problem? So I just walked out of there and I thought, well, that's just stupid. There's no point in being there if you can't even have those conversations. But that was the moment, I think for me, the tipping point when things really started to unravel. And I was definitely medicating myself through alcohol. So... If I reflect back, I was probably drinking every day. And it was really good because if you're like have a nice high flying job and you're meeting like lots, lots of really wealthy, successful people, you can mask your drinking behavior because it's like a really expensive bottle of Barolo. But it might as well have been just an old, you know, manky bottle of brandy. Can of scurvy jacks. It was just alcohol to, to ease the, the pain and suffering. So it all started to unravel and um culminated in, in having a panic attack in a really important meeting and to, to sum up the kind of stupidity that i still believed in at that point i had this panic attack and i had a bunch of really important people in, in the room and i felt like my heart was going to pop out of my head and my left arm i lost all feeling in my left arm and i was thinking this could be a stroke because they definitely say something happens in the left side of your body so i thought it feels like a stroke but i haven't fallen over <laughs> And um, I felt like my heart was going to pop out and I thought maybe it's a heart attack. But again, you know, I'm still here and I'm still managing this meeting and I'm still talking to people around me. And this is in the middle of the meeting. This is in the middle of the meeting. And then this moment happened where my periphery vision just disappeared. It was like somebody just put blinkers on me. So now I couldn't see left or right anymore. (laughs) So every time somebody spoke, I had to like spin around on my chair and look at them because I couldn't ha- see out of my periphery side. So I was thinking, periphery vision's gone, heart's pounding, left side is numb, uh, still haven't fallen over, I'll, I'll keep going. So I concluded the meeting, right? 25 minutes or half an hour later, I concluded the meeting, sent them all off, didn't say anything to anybody. And, and I thought, I'll go to the hospital now and just check, see if that was okay. So I hopped in a taxi and I was going to the hospital. And about five minutes in the taxi, I thought, I actually feel quite good. I think I need to go. So I went to the bar instead. Oh my had a couple of drinks. And uh, thought, ah, that'll be fine. So um I, I flew back home um to, to Ireland and uh, and I went into the house and Beatrice said to me, How are you? And I said, I had this little funny thing where, you know, I thought maybe it was a stroke or heart attack. And she said to me, Okay, enough is enough. She said, 
you have stopped petting our dogs and we love our dogs with two golden retrievers she goes for the last month when you come back you don't pet our dogs anymore she goes you have no energy left for anything else and she said you're falling apart you're physically unwell i mean i was seeing pulmonologists cardiologists rheumatologists gastroenterologists and you weren't even 40 at this stage oh i was 36 37 wow. um, and, I, and i'd gone from like being healthy to like a massive decline in the space of three years um i was spending i don't know a thousand euros ish a month just on medication to try and you know keep moving and that was it that was like okay then i realized something has to change um and i knew that i i you know i'd been really feeling desperately warm thoughts around suicide and this is a really challenging thing and and something for anybody who's listening it's really important to take a moment to ask for help and speak to somebody because i didn't think anybody else could ever feel like this so the last thing i could do was talk about it but the minute I started talking about it, it already started to change. So when I could sit down with Beatrice and actually cry that day and say, I'm not really holding all this together. And she's like looking at me going, well, you know, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> um, but she knows me well enough to know that, you know, like they say in, in Eastern philosophy, you know, when, when, the, when the student is ready, so too is the teacher. There was no point in her telling me it's time to slow down. I eventually had to be slowed down. And that just needed to be through my own processes um and that led to to an opportunity for change and and profound change and you know to change my diet my lifestyle to understand the importance of sleep like all the things that i was chronically depriving myself of um so this was three years after joshua's death but again you know i i, I always reflect with beatrice that if joshua had lived i don't think we'd be together I think we'd be divorced. She wouldn't have stuck it out with me. I was intolerable. Um, I don't think I would have stuck it out with them. I don't think I'm, I may even be alive. You know, the, the path was clear and something had to give in your life. And I think sometimes, you know, the universe or God or whatever you want to connect with comes along, gives you a slap in the head and says, do you want to make a different decision right now? And, and if you're lucky, you pay attention. And, and I think it was really lucky to, to see that. Wow. Amazing. And then, yeah. like, Steen's clutching the questions here now. That's well, just be, there's, like there's such profundity in everything you've said that it's deserves now a second for now mic drop. Okay, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no it really is that what you're saying is incredible, JC. Really, but it was really almost good. like you didn't take the time to grieve or to address what had happened, or at any moment to stop and check in with yourself, or to, to even and to check in with those around you. Like you were just consumed with this mission, continuously mission. I must win the next battle. I must win but the next ultimately, deal. Ultimately, it comes back to the product of your environment. That if you've been on, you know, survival of the fittest and dog eat dog and macho money loads of money successful will make me happy keep going on this and it's just that bullheaded you know egoic sense of just drive at all expenses and then eventually you know life waking you up hitting you enough times that you eventually saw the message and crumbled a bit and then in terms of rebuilding yourself what was the path of rebuilding was it having to address the grief and having to just kind of learn to slow down to go from being a human doing to a human being yeah very much so and i and i think one of the, one of the interesting things i read um recently because i was kind of researching this whole idea because one of the when i when i kind of pair this back and i and i talk and i'm working with leadership teams about this very openly 
because it's really impactful for people to go. Like if you don't face into the reality of your life, life will come and get you, right? There's, there's no two ways about it. You have to just face into some of the difficulty that you have in life. And I, and I started to research this whole idea of, you know, the, being close to death, being really close to, to the dead person and the reality of being close to it. And I discovered that it was only in the American Civil War that we started to have funeral um, directors and we started to outsource this whole idea of our dead bodies going to another party. And it was a great business idea established by some um, soldiers who realized that especially Protestant families in the U.S. would want to have the body of their dead son, typically as it was back then, brought back home. So they realized that there was a way of preserving the body. So they started the whole process of how do we use different chemicals to preserve a body and send it back. And believe it or not, they used to preserve the body with cyanide. So people close to the dead body were dying. And that's also where some of the myths that dead bodies are dangerous. Because alive bodies are dangerous because if they have viruses or whatever and they fart or cough or sneeze, they spread the virus. Dead bodies don't fart, cough There's and sneeze. There's no bacteria <laughs> there left. So... And, 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 and it's perfectly safe to be around dead bodies for a few days. But what we've done now is we've outsourced this to a whole new industry. So we basically give our dead relatives to a company and they kind of clean them up and put a bit of makeup on it, and they charge us to take the dead body back again. And we don't get that closeness. So I always step back and think the person who washed our dead child faced into the reality of the situation there and then. And the person who didn't had to face into it much later. And I think in all parts of our lives and all difficult conversations or challenging moments, the sooner we face into the reality, the easier it is to come to terms with it. And the longer we leave it, the more likely it becomes this huge problem. So yeah, it took me six months of, of therapy, um, I was very lucky that I got to work with a with an Indian therapist whose sole focus is on the non-medicated interventions, um, which is exactly what I wanted because my father had been desperately ill all his life with, with, with chronic stress and depression. My brother, a couple of years ago, ended up dying of, a, of an overdose for all of his challenges growing up. So I was very aware of the path that I didn't want to be on. Um, now, I did end up taking medication for about two months because I was preparing to kill myself. So it was a very significant moment. So medication as an intervention is important at times. But there was a plan to to get me off it. And really, in that therapy, it was coming to terms with me. And, and I often thought at that stage that Joshua's death is the problem. But actually, it was lots of things, you know, it was coming to terms with my relationship with my parents growing up, my father's illness, the challenges of my relationship with my mother, my family. And the more you kind of clear out and face into the reality and, you know, to use that analogy, the more you kind of wash those dead bodies, those difficult things that you haven't faced into, there's a spaciousness that comes from it. And I remember maybe three months into therapy, starting to think, I don't think this is really working at all. And I remember being in Manchester airport um, and I'd come off my medication and I still kept thinking, he keeps telling me that I'm going to start noticing things differently and feel different about myself. And there's this moment and I'm waiting for a plane from Manchester to Dublin and Manchester airport, as you guys have probably been in, is not the most beautifully structural 
building in the world. But I just had this moment, it just went click. Now I'd been meditating for weeks up until this point, And I suddenly just saw this beautiful roof in the airport. And I thought, wow, that looks really nice. And then I kind of looked around at the gate and I started to see smiling faces and people with kids and people getting ready to get in a plane. And I thought, wow, look at all these people. And it was almost like looking at my hands. I felt like, you know, when you see a baby, look at their hands for the first time. <laughs> I suddenly was like, anybody who was near me was thought that guy's clearly stoned. But I, it was like for the first time in at that stage, like 38 years, I was in possession of my own body. I was really aware of who I am. I wasn't thinking about where I need to be or what I need to do or how I need to get there. I was just there. And I thought, this is a lovely airport. And these are really interesting people around me. And that was the moment when it all changed. Wow. It's like going from preoccupied with what you're trying to do to suddenly actually being present with where you're at and observing the beauty or just even observing the life that's happening around you as opposed to observing what you're meant to do next and who's getting in your way. So, so say, for example, so say that's the seed, that's the seed of transformation. You know, the seed is planted there. Obviously, you need lots of, to continue with the analogy, you need lots of sunshine, you need water and you need the right elements for it to grow and blossom into Justin 2.0. Sorry, excuse my tone there, my tone shift there. Um, but uh, so, so, so like, you know, obviously that was about nine years ago and we've known you probably six or seven years and we, you know, you've evolved hugely since we've known you, you know, and we all continue to evolve each of us every day. Way. Who knows? That's that's uh, yeah, obviously uh, in a better way. Oh, yeah, obviously, <laughs> Justin, you're great. You're dead. I, I think Thanks. you're wonderful. I think you're wonderful. I love you dearly. But uh, so, so okay. So, so what have been the like? What have like? Obviously, I know them. But could, could you talk a bit about what have been the main kind of elements which have helped you to kind of grow more into yourself, into becoming a more whole person that you are today? Yeah, I think simplicity was was critical, right? So that awareness and suddenly noticing that I'm here and and I'm aware of myself was important. Now, of course, being like, you know, alpha, highly competitive, driven, lunatic, right? I still suddenly became aware and I thought, oh, I've conquered it all now. This is fantastic. I'm, and I'm King Alpha. I'm King Alpha. I'm King of the know? Jungle. And, and now I'm now I'm going to be this deeply profound conscious person. I'm going right? to be the best spiritual person yeah. ever. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to be G. I'm going to be. I'm going to be dominate. I'm going to dominate all these spiritual other people. Yeah, exactly. You know, I can. I can. God complex. Start a cult here. So it's like God complex. Total God complex, right? So I'm thinking, I'm on it. And when I was in therapy, one of the things that that my therapist, uh, Doctor Pradeep Chabak, kept saying to me all the time was. Um, you need to stop drinking alcohol. Now, he's an Indian physician in, in, in Ireland. I was running a financial services company with offices in two different countries. And I said to him, you've no idea what you're talking about. Like, you've never drank, right? I, I have to drink. This is part of what I do. And he was like, eh, yeah, well, you know, I think we've kind of noticed that a lot of things have gone wrong in your life. Alcohol's around them. Dismiss, dismiss, dismiss. And he said, eh, I think you'll change in time. Just wait. So... From that moment in Manchester, two months later, I'm out in our offices in, in Malta, got a bunch of clients who've come over. We've gone out for a big dinner and lots of uh, drinking and food and everything else. And I've had a few drinks and I'm walking back to my hotel. As I'm walking back to my hotel, 
I'd go along and, and pick up, you know, God knows what, some kind of kebab, right? So here we have alcohol, bad food, still prevalent in my life. But as I'm walking along, I see this, this kid on the ground with a bouncer holding him by the head, blood pouring from his face, and the bouncer about to kick him in the head. So I scream at the bouncer, jump in front of this kid, and, you know, the kid slumps to the ground, covered in blood. Bouncer steps back, and I've got to go and pick the kid up, and I've got blood all over me. He's only an 18-year-old kid. So I ask somebody else to call the police, and the police come, and I say to them, you know, there's the, there's the guy there. He's, he's the culprit. The police don't arrest him. Um, and what ensues really quickly is I start to realize the police are never going to arrest him. And actually, they're all in cahoots with this guy. So I thankfully put my phone on record what happens next. But I get arrested. So I get arrested by the cops, um, dragged along the ground from my face, thrown into a police car, brought into a police cell, put in the cell that night, um, roughed up while I was while I was brought to the cell and put in. Um Eventually, um, I'm, I'm struggling. I still have asthma really badly at the stage. I have an asthma attack at about four o'clock in the morning. They call an ambulance. They make me crawl through the to the police station to get into the ambulance. Go to A and E with cops in tow, and I'm and I'm on a gurney in A and E um, being inspected. It's like a hospital bed. Okay. Um, handcuffed to to oh the hospital bed. Um, not allowed to make a phone call. It's now the next day, right? I'm supposed to be in my office. Beatrice, my wife, doesn't know where I am. So I've gone from that moment thinking I have it all sussed two months earlier to being handcuffed to, to a hospital bed with two police officers standing beside me. And I'm being told that I assaulted a police officer and they have witnesses. And I was thinking, I didn't assault anybody. But I knew that I had my phone. I'd recorded some stuff, but I didn't really know what was there. So what ensued afterwards was I was then brought in in a in a in a per, perp walk as they call it in in uh in in, in the u.s so they the police had t- teed up all of the media news um papers the the tv journals um and i'm brought to the courthouse to be arraigned um i'm all over the front page of what all does arraigned papers. mean arraigned? so you you go in front of a judge and um the police put forward their um their 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 case their case um, and then the judge decides, are you going to be held on remand in prison until your trial date? And and on my board, thankfully, I had several lawyers on my board um, who were all kind of pretty blown away when I say to them, um, I need somebody to come to the, to the cop shop because I've been arrested. And we get into we get into the we get into the courthouse. And the police are petitioning for my passport to be withdrawn and for me to be held in prison pending trial, which would take maybe six to nine months, which means I can't go home. Um, now, at that stage, I was meditating, thank God. Um, I'd been in therapy and I was able to kind of be present to what was going on. If it had happened two months earlier, I would have been a goner. Um, but what ensued then for the next uh, six months was four high court appearances and um, my legal team told me to put my affairs in order i was probably going to get two and a half years in in prison if the police could prove um that i assaulted them and they had a couple of witnesses who were road sweepers who said they witnessed the whole thing and um <clears throat> roll on our last court date um thankfully we were able to to get some video um, and luckily i had access to um, some people in the UK who, who are ex-special um, forces who were able to come out to Malta and get hold of video evidence that was being hidden from us. 
and um, we won our court case and I didn't go to prison, but I learned lots of lessons. So one was that, you know, if you don't have enough money, you will probably go to prison because only for the fact that I was able to get evidence to corroborate the fact that the police were lying. We then proved they were lying. We proved that their witnesses were lying um, and, and the judge kicked the whole thing out. But it was it was a moment where I thought, okay, my life really has to change now. Um, and afterwards, in the days post that, I stopped drinking. Um, I think it was probably around the same time. I went plant-based because I started to think I need to be healthier, mind, body, more conscious. And a process then followed where lots of things happened. And I went and trained with, you know, some acidic monks in Japan. And I went on spiritual journeys to the East and I studied Buddhism, psychology, philosophy, Taoism, Hinduism. So lots of other things. Loads of isms. Loads of isms. But the principal thing was, you know, remove all the things that disconnect you from yourself. So even though I did nothing wrong that night when I was arrested, I still was drinking alcohol and I still needed to make that change. And I still feel that that moment was just like Joshua. It was another moment of a slap in the head. You're going to get away with this. But were there times that when I was drunk and out of control previously in my life that I needed to be taught a lesson? Absolutely. So it was another big, profound moment. And to think about going to prison for two and a half years, my son at that stage was nine. And to have to say, uh, I can't come back, really, again, woke me up. So it's not like, it isn't like one moment. And the journey from being really ill to being really well is not a blue pill. It's a period of deep self-discovery. And coming to terms with accepting yourself as you are and coming to terms with being okay with the things that you did wrong and coming to terms with guilt and shame and then realizing, actually, I can let them down now. I can let them go. And... And then just realizing, well, what's your values? And my values after that, I realized, were to just be the best dad that I could be and the best husband that I could be. And traveling around the world and not being present, that doesn't really fit. And I knew that my son had another seven or eight years of being around in my life. So I changed my life. I studied all these kind of isms. And then I went to UCD and did a master's in mindfulness base and I've studied neuroscience and I've studied, you know, wellness, performance, high performance, all that kind of stuff. And I get to network with people, which is great fun. But most importantly, I get to live my value statement, which is to be clear and present and available to my family. And that's the most important thing I can do. Good. Beautiful. Lovely. Have you got it sorted now? No. Fine. <laughs> <Okay>. Constantly. <laughs> I'm getting better. Can we finish with one thing? Yeah. Can we finish with the bear story? Oh, okay. This, so, so we have this cool Sunday podcast club, we call it. And it's like, it's like the modern day book club in that I shouldn't say the modern day. There are loads of book clubs out there and they're extremely modern and incredible. It's just a different version of it. That instead of books, we listen to podcasts, watch a movie, or it could be a poem or it could be a little video that you watch. And then we all sit around and we discuss it. And a number of times, Justin has been asked to retell this story because it's so good. Yeah, so, he told it like, so he did it for like a year and a half all through COVID, like over Zoom and all sorts of things. And everyone has three minutes to kind of say their thoughts on the podcast or whatever it might be. And time and time again, that bear story, that bear, so, so yeah, I, I think I, I'm going to get a bit of Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Justin, Justin Caffrey. Caffrey with his bear story. 
<laughs> you've got full your blankets again yeah 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 definitely yeah. i'm gonna suck me thumb here um so I, i'd gone on this retreat um with with uh these these really ancient acidic monks called the uh, yamabushi in in northwestern japan and and they've lived the same life that they've lived for 1500 years and part of the retreat they decided that it allow westerners to train with the yamabushi and they come from the samurai lineage so i th- looked on this website i don't even know how i found it. i thought that looks lovely I'm, I'm a meditator i think i'll be able to do that and i thought that'd be something different to do i always so, wanted to be a samurai I've always wanted to be level samurai. two jc so i thought i'll definitely go and do that so off i off i flew and um went to hang out with them and when i arrived for for this retreat i started to really notice that that the other people who were on this retreat looked like very super fit young people and i started to think well there must be a little bit more arduous work attached to this retreat than i thought so what happens is when you go into it you you arrive and they take your phone they take your watch they take your clothes you have to now wear these traditional clothes for the whole few days you're not allowed to know what time it is you're not allowed to contact anybody in the outside world and the whole purpose of the next five days is to disorientate you as much as they possibly can so they wake you up in all times of the day and there's no sleep. Sounds deadly. <laughs> it was really intense, right? It was great fun. It was proper kind of Boy Scout territory. And you're sleeping on the floor in this little shack and there's cats and animals walking around you and there's no doors and you've got no pillow. You're just basically handed a blanket and told that's where you sleep. And you're not allowed to talk and you're not allowed to look each other in the eye for six days. And if you breach this, you're out, right? So competition fantastic <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> who's the best <laughs> great so uh, lots of things happen over these six days and and they and they literally kill you right so they they have you walking for 10 12 hours up, up two of the highest mountains in japan um they at night time we had to go through these ceremonies where they burn all these these twigs in this tiny room and they make this toxic smoke and you have to stay there until you can't stay there any longer and you crawl out on the ground to leave and they say that this ceremony is to teach you that this is how hard life is and you have to be able to sustain a lot of the challenges in life but also know when the right time is to exit so they you do weird stuff and they wake you up you think you've you've gone to sleep and now it's two o'clock in the morning and they come in they blow this conch shell and out you go and you're and you're in this kind of military style procession so we're kind of three days in and we've gone through some like really mad shit right like bonker stuff that that's was incredibly profound but astounding too and and you know you sign a disclaimer when you go there and it says like you might die you might fall off a cliff you might be killed by spiders you might be killed by bears and i've done loads of stuff in america and you think oh yeah this is just disclaim 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 none of this ever happens the Japanese are like the Germans, right? When they tell you this might happen, it really might happen. And I don't mean to dismiss the Germans. I'm married to one, right? But they're very much, this is the case and this is what happens. So I realized this actually really happens because day two, we nearly fell off the side of a massive cliff. We were holding on with these sticks that they gave us and they said, you must hike with these sticks. And I thought, oh, that's a nice little addition. But no, the stick is so that when you're in these incredibly windy areas, you don't fall off the side of the mountain. So... Whatever time it is, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning, they wake us up this time. They say, right, everybody out into procession. Nobody's looking at each other. And we go off into the forest with these little Japanese lanterns. So a little candle inside one of those lantern things. And somebody at the front of our procession has one and somebody at the back has one. And there's six of us who are 
doing what's called master training in, in Yamabushi. And then there's three monks with us. Obviously, you were in the master training, I was of course. winning a master. Yeah. <laughs> of course you were. Have I ever told you I'm a master trainer? You, just Yamabushi? you're great. Thanks. You're great. <laughs> and uh, so we head off out into the, into the forest. And they tell us, you know, walk, move. You don't know how long you're going to walk for. You don't know what's going on. But it's very late and we're really disorientated. We're going to this dense, thick forest. And at the front is the, the leader who's, who was a, a 74-year-old Japanese monk called Master Hoshino, who was the fittest, most agile person I've ever come across in my life because we chased this guy up and down mountains. And three of the people who were on this um, course with me were all ex-military from Australia and New Zealand. And they were struggling to keep up with this guy. And I was very much at the back of the pack. But as we're walking through, he puts up his hand and everybody stops. Nobody knows why. And there's a monk behind me and he calls back and he said, you call back for another lantern. So I get handed this lantern and then I pass it to the person in front of me again, pass it to the person in front of me again, and the lanterns are being passed up. Now, the only thing that I always wondered when we were like doing this was that Master Hashino always had this little bell hanging off the side of his traditional little suit of the Yamabushi. And I never really knew what the bell was. I thought it must be some kind of really spiritual thing. <laughs> so I thought we'd find I out want at a some bell. point. I want a bell. I want a bell. Right? <laughs> so he had the magic bell and the lights went up to him. And he is, I would say, maybe five foot tall. So the lantern goes up to him and we're all kind of, you know, just a few people behind him. And he lifts this lantern up and he holds it up in the air. And as he holds it up in the air, I can see that there's something standing beside him. And the light moves across and he holds it up and there's a massive black bear on its back feet looking at us and looking at him. And it just growls at him. And he is looking at the bear, he's holding the lantern. And I think, we're going to die right now, but we're not allowed to move. And they're very specific. You know, you mustn't move. You don't talk. You don't say anything at any time. It's not just because of the bear all the time. So we all stand really still thinking, what's he going to do? Like, it's like a martial arts moment or what's going to happen next? So he reaches down to his suit and he takes up the little bell and he holds the bell up to the bear and he goes, ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. And the bear looks at him. And the bell and comes down onto its four feet, turns away and goes off into the trees. And we're all like, wow, it's incredible. So but we couldn't say anything, right? We're still in silence. So off we go and we trek into the forest. And two days later, the whole thing is coming to an end. And we're, there's a, there's a timeline where we're allowed to talk again. So we've, two days have gone, lots of other mad shit's gone on over the next two days. But we come into the hut and we stop. And then the monks said to us, okay, it's all right now, you can talk. And there was five of us there. And the only thing that happened the minute we could all talk was everybody looked at each other and went, holy fuck, what about the bear? What was all that about? And we were like, we nearly died. So we said to the monks, like, is that normal? And they went, no, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't planned at all. But they said for 1500 years, the bear was most likely the thing that's going to kill people in the mountains. And the Yamabushi who, so the principal thing of what we learned was um, 
Shinrin Yoko, which is that that forest bathing approach. It's that connection, deep connection to nature, understanding that when we're commune with nature, we're safe. So for 1500 years, they've been ringing bells to bears to let them know, no trouble here, no fight. So they rang the bell, the bear went, that's oh, okay, I won't kill you. And off he went. So Boy. no need for the sword when you have a little bell. Oh, I love yeah. that story. Have you got your magic bell yet? No, it's still in, still in the post, apparently. JC, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're brilliant. That was absolutely wonderful. Wonderful. Thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, for anyone listening who wants to learn more about your coaching and your work, where will they? Uh, you can find out my, my corporate stuff is on uh, yourbottomline.com. Um, my personal work, one-to-one stuff, justincaffrey.com or instagram you can follow me just an underscore caffrey and youtube you've got loads of YouTube oh yeah there's loads of free stuff on youtube so i put yeah. up lots of stuff around polyvagal theory neuroscience behavior so i share lots and lots of stuff on there which is completely free there's breath techniques one of the breath techniques that that is that was born out of out of my one of my greatest teachers dr pradeep chada um has been watched i don't know half a million times um with phenomenal results people talking about ending panic attacks because they practice it for a week or two it's a very simple technique if you type in hand pressing technique justin caffrey it'll walk you through it um and and it's really impactful if you're feeling stressed overwhelmed it's a great place to start brilliant you're justin caffrey you're amazing thank you thank you thank you thank you thanks david thanks Stephen. you're welcome justin <laughs> that was great crack thank you jc i love justin yeah jc's cool it's brilliant the stories were cla- i love that bear story I yeah. really do. I love the Gas bear story. And the amount of emotion, like I cried. That's I think that's the first podcast interview we've done where I've cried live. I was crying. I really was. Um, yeah. When Justin was telling the story about Joshua. But uh, yeah, I hope you got loads from this podcast. Hope you enjoyed the reminder of psychological safety, the importance of being vulnerable, bringing the whole of ourselves. Um, yeah. And as uh, Justin said, he's got lots of content on, he's got a website for his own coaching and he's got YouTube channels and all sorts of different things. So do check out JC. And uh, yeah, just wanted to say thanks for your attention. I really hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. If you did, we've done loads of other ones on leadership and all sorts of other aspects. So uh, there was a great one with Joanna Hessian, if you're interested in leadership. And yeah, once again, thanks, Emil, for if you've lasted this far. We salute you. We are extremely grateful. And yes, from our hearts, yours. Thank we you. wish all of you a wonderful day. Yeah. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Sorry about that. <laughs>